Welcome to High Performance Mindset with Dr. Sindra Kampoff. Do you want to reach your full potential, live a life of passion, go after your dreams? Each week, we bring you strategies and interviews to help you ignite your mindset. Let's bring on Sindra. Welcome to the High Performance Mindset Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Sindra Kampoff, and thank you so much for joining me here today, ready to listen to episode 252 with Dr. Jamie Shapiro. Now, the goal of these interviews that I do every week is really to learn from the world's best, and I interview consultants, speakers, leaders, coaches, athletes, all about the topic of mindset to really help us apply this and be high performers in our field. Now today, Jamie and I talk about a variety of different things, specifically all around the topic of high performance or top performance. And Jamie and I were talking about where did we first meet? And I think it was in 2012 at the Orlando Conference at the American Psychological Association. So it was really fun for us as we were doing this interview to think about uh, how long have we really known each other and where did we first meet? So I am delighted to introduce you to Jamie. So Dr. Jamie Shapiro is an associate professor and assistant director of the Master's in Sport and Performance Psychology, the program there, at the Graduate School of Professional Psychology at University of Denver. She earned her PhD in Sport and Exercise Psychology from West Virginia University, along with her Master's in Community Counseling there, and she also has a Master's in Athletic Counseling from Springfield College. She earned her BS in Psychology from Brown University, where she was a gymnast uh, for four years. We talked quite a bit about that and just the psychology of that sport. Uh, Dr. Shapiro is also a certified mental performance consultant listed on the United States Olympic Committee Sports Psychology Registry and a national certified counselor from the National Board of Certified Counselors. So she is a consultant uh, along with her work there at University of Denver. She's a consultant for um, a group called Sport and Performance Excellence Consultants, and they're based in Denver, where she works with Paralympic athletes, youth athletes, college athletes, and elite athletes. And one cool thing about Jamie you might not know, you know, as a former competitive gymnast, what she likes to do is take really cool pictures of her doing handstands all over the world. So I will post a picture of this on Twitter so you can head over to mentally underscore strong to look at those pictures, but they're pretty cool. In this podcast, Jamie and I talk about what top performers do and the habits of top performers, how to be a reflective performer and what to do at the end of your performance to really help you learn and grow, but to stay positive and productive. She also talks about why we need to mind our mental energy, which is a concept I really loved learning about in this podcast from her, what we need to do to refocus when we're really negative and that that it's much more than just being positive, and then ways to deal with fear of failure. Now, my favorite quote from this interview is this one. She talks about when discussing high performers, she said, the best kiss, and what this means is they keep it simple and smart in order to quiet their brain. I know you'll enjoy this episode with Dr. Jamie Shapiro. Would love to hear anything that you have to say about the podcast. You can find me over at Twitter at mentally underscore strong. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, Wherever you're listening to this podcast, if it's iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher Radio, just head over there and write a comment or review about the podcast. That would just help us reach more and more people each and every week uh, about a positive message about mindset. All right. Have an outstanding week, my friends. Without further ado, here is Jamie. 
Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jamie Shapiro. So great to have you here. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Sindra. It's really an honor to be one of the people you interview on your show. Absolutely. And we were just talking about how many years ago that we met. We can't even remember, but um, I know it's been, you know, five, six, seven years ago. We've roomed together at some conferences and uh, I really enjoy your insight. So I'm really looking forward to talking with you today and, and learning more from you, Jamie. Thanks, Sindra. So let's start. And just for those listeners who might not know who you are, tell us a little bit about your passion and uh, what you do right now. So to sum up my passion in a few words, I would say that it would be studying, observing, and being just a small part of people's growth experiences, both professionally and personally. And that relates to several things that I do. So my full-time job is as an associate professor, a faculty member at the University of Denver. They have a master's in sport and performance psychology program. So I'm a faculty member there. It's a graduate program that's really practice focused. So we're training practitioners in sport and performance psychology. And I do supervision of the students' work in the community. I'm very lucky to be a part of a team of four faculty members. We have four full-time faculty members there. And that is my full-time job, teaching, advising, supervising the students. And then on the side, I get to do some sport and performance psychology consulting. So I'm a member of Sport and Performance Excellence Consultants here in Denver, Colorado. Um, The majority of my consulting work over the past five years has been with U.S. Paralympic teams and athletes. I also do work with some individual athletes in the community as well. So that's my side gig, the consulting. Which well, I love. into all of those areas. Yes, I'm excited oh. to talk more about that. And, and also I'm involved with some professional organizations. Like you mentioned, the American Psychological Association. Division 47 is the Society for Sport, Exercise, and Performance Psychology. So I'm in the leadership um, executive committee there. And then also really involved with ASP, the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. Awesome. So, Jamie, tell us a little bit about your interest in like studying sports psychology. I know you're a gymnast at Brown, and my guess is that's a little bit of what, you know, made you decide to pursue this as a profession. I would say I got interested in the profession probably in high school. I took, you know, my intro to psychology class and loved it and heard from probably a teammate and my coach about the field of sports psychology At the time, I was interested in in doing something with athletes, maybe physical therapy or athletic training. Then I went to a lot of physical therapy for my own injuries and decided, no, this isn't the direction I want to go. I I saw them touching people's feet, and that's what was the end of that for me. So I was like, I'd rather talk to people and not have to touch body parts. But anyway, part of sports psychology, I was like, that sounds really cool. You know, I love my psychology class. I went to Brown. There was no sports psychology classes there. And we didn't have any sports psychology services either on the gymnastics team. So I really did my own research. And whenever I could write a paper on a topic of my choosing, I chose to write it on sports psychology. And that's how I started learning about the field. I loved it. I totally understood it, especially as a gymnast. It's so mental. I connected with the field. And senior year, I did an independent study with a few other athletes. A psychology professor was nice enough to take us on and We read sports psychology textbooks and discussed it, um, and I just decided, you know what, this is what I want to do, and talked to people in the field, learned about the different paths I could take, applied for graduate school, and that's what started my path. 
That's awesome. So, Jamie, one of the questions I always ask people at the beginning of the interview is uh, to tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. And I think the reason I think it's important at this point is because we're going to dive into your work, but it's also important to know that it hasn't been perfect on the way, right? And that we all have these failures, but we can really learn a lot from them to, to view them as challenges or opportunities. So tell us a story about a time you failed and, and what you think we can learn from it. Sure. I have a couple stories and it was really about my professional path. So when you look at my professional path, I wanted to do sports psychology and, and here I am doing pretty much my dream job. But in between that, you know, once I decided, okay, I want to go to graduate school for sports psychology, I didn't get into my top pick of a program, which was the PhD program in sport and exercise psychology at West Virginia University. So I didn't get in out of undergrad and was, was disappointed, but I did get into Springfield College's athletic counseling program and that's where I ended up going. And one lesson learned is just that things work out for a reason and they eventually work out if you continue to pursue your passion. So looking back, I'm so grateful that I didn't get into West Virginia and got to go to Springfield College because I have a whole other set of amazing, phenomenal mentors from Springfield. I got to see a different way of training, learn from different people. And I actually think that's quite important for young professionals. I really value that I have a master's degree from a different place than my PhD. So I worked my butt off at Springfield, had a great time, and then applied to West Virginia again. And this time I got in and, and even got a fellowship. And so it worked out for the best. So that's one lesson learned. And then my other sort of failure was when applying for jobs. You know, it's my last year at West Virginia. I'm doing my dissertation. I'm like overwhelmed with all of that. And some jobs came out, I applied, I really wasn't getting any interviews or anything. The job from Denver came out and I kind of, as I usually do, procrastinated a little bit on applying for that job because another job had come out at the same time with a deadline. And I finally called Mark Alyagi, who's now my boss and director of the program at DU and, and said, you know, I'm interested, can I ask you some questions? And he said, you know, Jamie, I, I met him at conferences, so he knew me, he said, Jamie, we've already met and, and created our list of people we're interviewing. So, you know, you could, you could still apply. I'm not telling you not to apply because technically the applications are still open, but just want to be honest with where we are in our process and that we were moving ahead with interviews. And so wow. I, I cried a little in my apartment. <laughs> I was like at the bottom of the barrel, hadn't heard anything about interviews, writing my dissertation. And I was, mad but I decided to apply anyway to DU I said I'm just gonna send it in this is probably a waste of a few hours of my time but whatever you know you never know what'll happen and you know a few months later Mark called me again and said Jamie are you still interested and available in this job and it was a half-time faculty position so it wasn't a full-time and I said yes and yes because <laughs> I hadn't heard from anybody and he said, you know, our search didn't work out. And, and you're right now the only person we're even looking at and considering wow. if you're interested. So then I didn't cry. I mean, maybe I cried for joy at that point. But I said, yes, I'm definitely interested. And talking to funny, my, one of my mentors, Sam Zizzy, and he said, well, that's great. But first of all, tell Mark you're not coming out until you defend your dissertation. <laughs> And the second, are you really sure you want to consider a half-time faculty position and moving across the country for a half-time faculty position? And I said, you know, 
it's a new program. It's a great program. It's in a great city. I was ready to live in a city after being in Morgantown. As much as I love Morgantown, I was ready to be in a city. And, and they did say eventually they wanted it to go full time. They just didn't know when. This was during the recession in 2009 and, and things like that. So I took a chance, interviewed there, went well, got offered the job was half-time faculty my first year and went full-time my second year. So a lesson learned from that, a few lessons. One, when the job description comes out, call, find out their <laughs> timeline. Don't dilly-dally on that. Um, and then take a chance. You know, it was a half-time position that most people wouldn't move across the country for. And I saw the opportunity there and decided to take it. And obviously it's worked out as is my... Uh, I'm almost my 10 year anniversary there and oh, awesome. it's really just a dream job, an amazing professional fit for me. It's a, like I said, a practice focused program and it's been amazing. Well, that's awesome. You know, I have a similar story in terms of I did I I didn't get into my top choice or my PhD program either, and then it kind of came full circle where I talked to the faculty who is in charge of that program like last month, and you know he kind of said I've been following your career, I've been watching what you're doing, great job, and I said you know I didn't get into your program, <laughs> and he said well you didn't give me a call, like I just applied, but kind of like what you did is you called Mark, and so. I think maybe I was too stuck in my comfort zone mm-hmm. to fear of rejection, not to pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm really interested in your program, you know, put myself yeah. out there. So, and it did, it ended up, you know, perfect because uh, I'm really happy with where I'm at. So, uh, great story. So, Jamie, you do some work with the U.S. Paralympic teams. So, like alpine skiing, snowboarding, you've worked with track and field. So, tell us a little bit about that work and uh, what you do for that. Sure. So I just want to give a little background for people out there who might not be familiar with what the Paralympics is. It's elite sport. It's elite level sport for athletes with physical disabilities. There are a couple sports where they have a classification called intellectual uh, disabilities, but for the most part, these are athletes with physical disabilities. So you'll see people in wheelchairs, you'll see people with prosthetics. There's also a class of visually impaired athletes so blind athletes, and, and there's varying degrees of blindness. Um, so that's just a background on, on some of the athletes that I'm working with in the Paralympics. And I got involved with that really, again, by luck, as most of us get some of our opportunities, by being in Denver. And the, the high performance director of U.S. Paralympics wanted to expand their sports psychology services. They didn't have any sports psychology professionals on the ground in Sochi, and realized they really needed someone there. So they reached out to a few of my colleagues at the University of Denver and, and two of us, Dr. Artur Poshvardovsky and I, took a coffee meeting with the high performance director and it went well. He gave our names to some coaches and it took off from there. So he and I do uh, quite a bit of co-consulting. So when I say we, I'm talking about Artur and I, that we do a lot of co-consulting with some of the teams that we work with so again just taking a chance taking that coffee meeting could have gone nowhere and it happened to lead to these amazing opportunities that I've had for consulting and um, gotten to travel with teams and it not only enriches me professionally but helps enrich my teaching and that I can bring in confidential examples of what I'm going through as a consultant you know we're training consultants in sport performance psychology it's important that we as faculty members are out there, just like you, Sindra, also doing the practice so we can talk about what we're going through and our successes, but also our challenges. I think our students really appreciate, especially hearing about 
our challenges, they kind of look at us as invincible and like, we know what we're doing. And when we talk about, you know, I wasn't sure what to do there. That was really uncomfortable for me. I think they really appreciate that. Yeah, love it. Love it. So elite level sport, tell us a little bit about watching because I think of the world's best athletes, right? Mm -hmm. Tell us what you think kind of separates them from the rest. Sort of what I mean by that is those people who can do really well at the games. I know you've been to Pyeongchang this last Olympic cycle, but tell us about what do you see them doing that's different from others who don't even get there or who maybe don't thrive when, when they're at you know, the, the highest level? Yeah, I think one, one thing I think about is being a student of the sport. So really learning about what it takes to be an excellent performer in that sport. And that would be physically, technically, tactically, and mentally as well. So when I see athletes who are, who are really excelling at that high level, they come to our meetings with a notebook and they're taking notes. And they're really engaged and paying attention when the coaches have team meetings. And they're, I think for Paralympics especially, although for able-bodied sport, there's, there's equipment, right? But for, for Paralympics, they have prosthetics. They have special equipment. Like for the skiers have mono skis. The track and field athletes have racing wheelchairs. So they're learning about the equipment. They learn how to fix it. They learn how to use it to its highest capabilities. And so they're really studying what it takes to get to that high level as well as mentally. And I think they have, in addition, just a high level of self-awareness of what works for them. And they capitalize on that. And they also have a self-awareness of what they need to improve or continue to work on. So I also say athletes at the highest level, I think are really good what I call, or not what I call, but (laughs) what the field calls reflective performers, that they're reflecting after each performance, after each practice day, after each competition, uh, you know, after a season, and really thinking, you know, what's going well, and how do I continue to build on that? And what do I need to improve? And how do I go about doing that? Is it the mental piece? Is it the physical piece? Is it both? You know, what are my resources for improving on those things that I need to improve? And how do I really engage those resources? So we definitely have some athletes who utilize our services more than others. And I I think those are those people who realize, you know, I have to improve on that mental game. And we have Artur and Jamie and um, Sarah Mitchell's the full-time sports psychologist at the USOC right now for Paralympics. And so they, they engage us more so than maybe some of the other athletes. And what would you say in terms of what are their challenges in terms of competing like with a physical disability? You know, what do you see them struggling with either from like just a technical standpoint, maybe a mental standpoint, perhaps? Yeah, I think the mental piece is quite similar to able-bodied athletes. Of course, there's confidence issues and focus and motivation and, and some things maybe specific to the Paralympic athletes with confidence. You know, I just met with some athletes who have only been racing for two seasons and they're already at the international level. So the trajectory Hmm. for Paralympic athletes sometimes, because there's not as big of a pool of athletes, is that they can get to that international level, that elite level, really quickly. And so they haven't necessarily developed the, the mental skills that are needed to compete at such a high level with the pressure that they're under. So that might be specific to them. Um, motivation as well could come into play. I think, as you know, many athletes start out, I love this. I love the feeling of this. 
And then it becomes a job and there's expectations of medal counts and podiums and sponsorships. And it can take a toll. I think for Paralympic athletes too, the, the money may mm. not, the stipends may not be the same. And so they're working full-time jobs or they're going to college and, and to fit in the level of training that the coaches require with those full-time jobs or school can be really difficult for some of these athletes. That's what I've seen. And some are able to full-time be an athlete and they get that money and sponsorships, but many of them don't. Yeah, absolutely. And Jamie, what do you see, you know, you said kind of the mental skills needed to compete at the highest level and do well, despite the pressure, you know, and I know we, we have all this academic literature that tells us, okay, what mental skills are, are needed to be able to do that. But what do you really see, you know, the people that did well, what did you see? What are the mental skills that they used when they were competing there? I think the, the planning and being able to execute the plan. So working on, I'm talking specific to the sports I work with, skiing and snowboarding, having a plan, you know, a pre-competition, pre-race plan, mm-hmm. thinking to that, but also being flexible because, as you know, especially at a game situation, there's all sorts of distractions. There's, you know, there could be delays. There's weather issues. So we had some days where there was weather and they had to reschedule. So being flexible with their plans and resilient with those plans and really being able to roll with it. Um, but then when they're in the start gate, they do their routine. And I want to say during the course, I think this is true of any athlete staying present and having cues to help them stay present. So having, you know, usually we talk to them about technique cues, whether they're leaning or dropping a shoulder or whatever they want to focus on. You know, we're not experts in the sport. I, I wasn't a competitive skier. So really talking to them about where do you want your focus during this run and them executing it, staying really present during the run being able to roll, you know, skiing conditions constantly change. So they have to be really adaptable to the conditions. So developing that mental flexibility, I think is very important for, for certain sports, like where conditions are changing. And then again, reflecting. So we often met with athletes at the finish line to say, okay, how did that go? What went well? What do you want your focus to be next time? It was really quick, but it helped them process what their focus would be for next time, if it was at the end of the day, it would be a similar type processing. What went well? What could have been better? But what do you want your focus for tomorrow? Or if they were totally done with competition, doing a larger processing of that. Yeah, love that. So what went well and where do you want your focus tomorrow? There's nothing negative in there, like what didn't go well, right? right. So you're helping them stay focused on the positive, but this idea that focus can be manipulated or changed or, you know, that, that we have control of that. So I like that question. Um, Jamie, what do you see in terms of, is there a topic or a technique that you kind of see yourself talking about a lot with the athletes that you work with to help them you know, just master the mental game? So in our program, in the graduate program, we're really big on talking about theoretical orientation to performance excellence. And I've, I've talked about mine with the students and I've called it mind your mental energy. So mind being like using our mind, but also pay attention to where your mental energy is. And I talk to athletes a lot about that they only have a finite amount of mental energy, just like physical energy. And some athletes are taught really well how to manage their physical energy. And I think especially with athletes with disabilities, some of them um, could get fatigued quite quickly and they have to be really careful about how they manage their physical energy. So we talked a lot about managing 
your mental energy and how you're spending it and spending it on things that are productive. And I use the word productive very intentionally. I don't use the word positive. I think many athletes come back and say, you know, I just had a terrible run or I just fell or whatever it might be. Like, I'm not going to be positive after that. And I totally get that, especially as a gymnast. You know, you fall off the beam, you don't feel good about it. But can you refocus to something productive and helpful for you? I think you can, even if you feel negative. So we talk a lot about what what's the most productive place to put your energy. And it might be, it might be being positive. It might be encouraging yourself. Or it could be, what's my technique word right now or what's my technique focus so that's more of a neutral thing so so productive mental energy is something i'm constantly talking to athletes about it's a lot about what's in their control many athletes are focusing on things outside their control whether it's an issue with a coach or a teammate winter sports definitely the weather and the conditions and that's all out of their control so it's like what's what would be more productive to spend your mental energy on right now Awesome. I love that. I love that you're choosing productive over positive and, you know, that it's really, again, empowering them that they can control this mental energy. I think so many times we focus on things we can't control. Maybe we spin on something negative. You are overthinking. So what do you see in terms of what gets in the way of people having, you know, this productive mental energy? I think, well, one thing you just said, overthinking, I think that's so common especially with our analytical athletes or they're analyzing every single thing. And that can actually interfere in the brain with their motor programs. So I like bringing up the KISS principle quite a bit. And I, I, I say, keep it simple and smart. Ah, good. So keep it simple and smart. Um, simplify things because we need to kind of quiet the brain in order to let those movement patterns go. Like we want athletes to go out there and do their automatic movement patterns and and when there's other what I call noise in the brain whether it's distractions or overthinking it blocks the ability for that mo- that movement program or motor program to execute so definitely simplifying things I think is really important awesome and so what was it like for you Jamie to be at Pyeongchang with the athletes supporting them traveling as a consultant to really be there to serve right like you're not there for you you're there to support them. So tell us a little bit about what that journey was like for you. That was definitely a highlight of my career, aside from getting the job at University of Denver. Um, But it it was a highlight. It was the culmination of almost four years of work with some of these teams. And like I said, there was no one on the ground in Sochi. And the high performance director, Matt Kramer, brought three sports psychology professionals out to Pyeongchang. So he really took a chance with us and felt really good about having those resources on the ground. So for me personally, I was really aware based on my experiences over the last four years of managing my own energy Mm. so that I could be a good support for the athletes. I had been to the Parapanam games and I was the only only sports psych person there. I had, you know, traveled with other teams and I just noticed that managing my energy was really difficult because you are on as a consultant from the, the minute you wake up kind of to going to bed, you know, you're eating with the athletes, you're watching them train. And then when the coaches get a break, you're meeting with individual athletes to do mental check-ins with them. So it's, it's very tiring. And it was important to me to manage my energy in Pyeongchang. I was there for almost three weeks. Wow. So that was the longest I had traveled with the team as well. 
I feel very grateful and lucky that there were three of us there because we definitely kept each other in check to make sure we weren't doing too much or if someone seemed really kind of stressed or burnt out, we were able to check in with each other and say, why don't you, you know, take the night off or go for, let's go for a workout, whatever it might be. And we, instead of going on the bus with the athletes at four or five in the morning to the mountain, we went around seven, which was after their inspection and we could still check in with them. But I think in the past we might've been like, yes, we have to be on that bus with the athletes in the morning. And then we would have been just totally burnt out by the end of it. So I was happy with the energy management piece, but some of the work that we did there, we checked in with athletes a lot. And what was really nice about that experience was I felt like they finally knew how to use us. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Before that, they, they like weren't sure. Should I approach Arthur and Jamie? I don't, I don't know how this is going to go. And by that point, they knew, okay, we're going to check in about the race plan in the morning and talk about any concerns we have. And then check in with them at the end of our run and before the next run. And we were some of the only staff down at the finish line because the coaches were up on the course. And so it was nice for them to have someone to check in at the bottom of their run right when they finished. So they, it was fresh in their minds how it went. We met with them. We stayed in the Olympic Village. So some of them requested some longer meetings, especially if they felt some nerves or maybe it was just to review their plans with us just for a confidence boost. And that's some of the work that we were able to do. We sat in on team meetings and piped in every now and then if we had something to say. But for the most part, you know, we, we balanced between checking in with them, but also just sitting back and letting them do their thing. You know, we didn't want to be one more distraction or obligation that they had to do when they were already under so much pressure at the games. Absolutely. Well, I, I'm hearing a lot about like how you are the performer and you have to manage yourself. I think we can all relate to that no matter what our profession is. It's like, how are we managing ourselves to using our own mental skills to serve others? Yeah. So tell us about like, what was a highlight for you? You know, like maybe it was a performance of an athlete. Maybe it was just being there and like a specific moment that you remember that you were really grateful for, but anything come to mind on like just a really cool moment? Well, I think what I said before about the fact that I felt I didn't get sick, I felt good by the end and that we felt, like I said, we felt really helpful to the athletes. And it was awesome just to feel like, okay, we know when to use Artur and Jamie and Sarah or, or not. There was an interesting story I have, which was, I definitely had to use my own composure mental skills for, but at, at the start line, I had an athlete come over to me who I'd been working with for a few years and said I don't know what to do mm. like before her run and I was like what <laughs> You're, you know this is an elite level athlete and so I'm trying to stay composed like yes you do know what to do and, and let's talk about why and and we also had cameras circling us while having this conversation so wow both of us just trying to block out that distraction and have a conversation to get her in the headspace where she could race and do well because she in her um, qualifying runs just, just wasn't performing as well as she could. And so she was really nervous for the final run. And I said, yeah, you do know what to do. Let's talk about why. And she listed some of the reasons. And we also went through an imagery script of the course. So she closed her eyes and went through it and went through all her cues and was a little bit calmer after that. So I'm certainly not taking credit. She happened to do really well <laughs> on the run. So I was like, yay, could have gone the other way. But 
you know, even if I was just a tiny part of being able to calm her down and get her to be able to focus on what she needed to do, that was kind of a cool moment where she had to use her mental skills, but I also had to keep my composure. Absolutely. As someone with cameras circling us, which is obviously not something I had ever experienced before. Yeah, and what I also hear is, like, you really knew her. To be able to think about what the imagery script is right on the spot and to know what her cues are, you had to really had, had developed that relationship with her and understood her to be able to give her that, you know, brief intervention in that moment. Yeah, that definite, definite brief intervention. I, I also want to talk about some struggles I had there. I think that's important for listeners to hear. For sure. That, you know, there were certainly a lot of highlights. It's awesome to watch athletes you've been working with get a medal, succeed, just have a really great performance. But then it's really, really hard to watch athletes not perform the way that they wanted to and expect a medal and not get one. So that was, that was hard for me too, to just manage my own emotions. You know, as sports psych consultants, we're usually taught to like stay really neutral in terms of emotions. And that was hard for me not to get like super excited when the athletes did well, but also not to get super disappointed when they didn't. And I think my go-to intervention is reframing a lot. So reframing, again, to look at something more productive or, or positive. And there was an athlete that, you know, was super disappointed after Ron came over and I, I went to the reframe and it was just too soon for that. And, and I really felt like I should have just sat with him in those emotions and validated them a little bit longer. And he was able the next day, he was a new person and was yeah. happy to go to closing ceremonies and he was fine then. And that would have been a more appropriate time. But in that, in that moment, I think I struggled with, what do you, what do you say? you know, to someone who didn't have a good games and didn't meet their expectations. And I think what I learned is really just sitting with them and that and letting them lead, you know, whatever they kind of need in that moment and meeting them where they're at. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because from my own experience, it's really difficult not to tie your own identity into like when you're helping people perform well, and if they do well or not. I've had to really manage that as well and gotten better at it over time. But you know, a couple, five years ago, it was really difficult for me. <laughs> and, and I like what you're saying is that maybe the reframe or the intervention is too quick. I had an experience mm -hmm. with a college football team who I worked with for many years, like seven years. And last year, they were really working to get to the national championship game. And they didn't make it. And I remember kind of shortly after the game, I was talking to uh, one of our quarterbacks and and did kind of talk about reframing. It was way too soon. <laughs> you know, you're right, because you have to kind of sit with it and, and make sense of it yourself before maybe you're applying a different positive perspective or productive perspective, if I use your word. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Jamie. So one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about was your experience as a gymnast at Brown. And from my own experience working with gymnasts, I think that it can be such a difficult sport from a mental standpoint, because there's a lot of fear and anxiety that can take place, particularly if you have fallen or, you know, had an injury. So maybe to start us off, tell us a little bit about your experience just as a gymnast and what that was like for you. And then we can dive into sort of like the mental game about gymnastics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I did club gymnastics up to level 10 in New Jersey, which is where I grew up, and then made the team at Brown University, and I was on the team for four years. You know, I had injuries throughout my career, but my first real major injury was freshman year at Brown. It was the day before our first meet, so my first college meet ever, oh, wow. and uh, I tore my ACL on, on a dismount on bars. 
And bars was not my best event, and I shouldn't have probably been competing it anyway. <laughs> but they, at the time, required freshmen to to trade all four events, and so I remember being so exhausted before this routine, but mm-hmm. I did it anyway, and and blew my knee on the dismount and tore my ACL, so missed my whole freshman year. Wow. Came back sophomore year and competed uh, balance beam and floor, and this is one of my mental examples was. I did great on beam um, my sophomore year. I was one of the most consistent people. And so I was known as consistent gymnast on the beam. And then junior year, I came back and fell in almost every meet. <laughs> so it wasn't my physical talent because in practice, I nailed it. And so they kept putting me in the lineup because they knew I had the potential. But I think because I had this label and this pressure of being the consistent beam person, then for some reason, junior year, I just couldn't get it together. And I did, even though I didn't have a sports psych professional, that's when I really wish I did. Um, I did a lot of video watching and imagery. And I think what ultimately worked, I finally nailed my routine in one of the postseason meets, was using technique cue words. Okay. So, and I use this a lot with athletes I work with as well. In developing what a woman named Allison Arnold she does some sports psychology work with gymnastics. She calls it mental choreography. So in gymnastics, for floor routine and beam routine, we get them choreographed. We have choreography for the routines. And, and she calls it mental choreography, where you come up with cue words, or it could be sounds, or it could be phrases, or you know whatever works for the person. Some people sing to themselves during beam routines, so that works. Uh, of just that keeps you present and focused and not worried about falling or or getting too ahead of yourself and getting too excited when you're in a good routine so there, there are times that on balance beam when yes I got all my major skills stuck and then you do a little turn and bobble because you're too ahead of yourself or too excited so mental choreography really keeps you present and focused on what you need to do and that's ultimately I think what worked for me on beam to get back to it and Senior year, unfortunately, I had a, another injury. I had an ankle injury, so was unable to compete. I definitely, because it was my senior year and, and I knew it was my last year of gymnastics ever, tried to push it too hard too soon, injured my ankle even more, and finally competed, I think, in my last meet. So I ended on a good note, but it certainly wasn't the senior season I had imagined. I, I, right? And by the end of that, my body was ready to be done. So people ask if I was sad to be done with gymnastics, and... It was certainly such a big part of my life, but my body was like, please stop doing this. So my <laughs> happy, my mind kind of had to catch up and I certainly missed being part of a team and things like that. But I was lucky to transition while I was at Springfield College. I was able for some of my graduate school funding to coach the Division Three team there. And that helped me, I think, with my transition out of the sport. So, Jamie, can you give us an example or two of, like, this mental choreography and the technique keywords? Like, what helped you, particularly, you know, that junior year that you're talking about, be more consistent in the end? Yeah, they're really short words, so they probably won't make sense to people. Probably won't make sense to anyone but me, but I would go through my routine and I would say, okay, arms, push, go, extend, tight. You know, just the very, again, you want to, the KISS principle, you want to keep it simple. Because if you're really telling yourself sentences, you don't have time for that. In the middle of a mm-hmm. backhand spring layout, you don't have time to actually break it down and tell yourself each technique it takes. So if you can encapsulate that, you know, the backhand spring in one word, and like I said, it might be push, feet, lift, arms. And like, that's what 
helped keep me focused. So really short words. And for some people, it might be sounds. Like some people might be like, boom, bam, <laughs> you know, things like that, that, that help them through their routine. That's awesome. Do you have any other strategies or techniques that you think help help gymnasts be more present and then so they're less likely to experience that fear, anxiety that can cause injury or, you know, falling? I wanted to talk a little bit about mental blocks. I think that's something so common in gymnastics. And I saw it with teammates. I experienced it a little bit. And I see it a lot with clients. That's when clients call me, usually when they're having a mental block. And what that means is all of a sudden, you can't do a skill that you previously were able to do. In some other sports, they call it the yips. Like yeah, exactly. Ball, right? So pitchers all of a sudden can't throw a pitch. So mental blocks is the terminology used in gymnastics. And it's, it's really tough, I think. Everyone's going to work through it differently. But one thing that I'm that I think is really important is to try to reduce the pressure on the person to get that skill back. Often like the coach is like, oh, okay, come on. Like, why can't you do this? Like, let's keep working on it. And the parent is constantly asking about it. And obviously the gymnast is super upset and worried about it. And so all of that pressure, like we talked about before is interfering in the brain with what their body knows how to do that motor program. And so I actually think a lot of coaches and parents should sort of ignore it. So maybe not let them get away with it, but say, okay, like you're going to do it again when you're ready and not keep asking and putting pressure on the person to do it. Cause that actually usually makes it a lot worse. Mm. And I have heard from some gymnasts, even at like a college level or high level that they never did this certain skill again. Like they just never got it back. And, and to me, that's, I think could be worked through. One, one thing to do to build that confidence, that mental piece, is the gradual progression of the skill. It's almost start learning the skill over again and going back to, okay, what does it take to learn a back handspring? And you do it, you know, you have to do a back walkover and then you can do it over a rolling mat and then you do it with a spot and then you do it on a soft mat and then you do it on a hard mat. So building that confidence by those smaller progressions towards the skill, I think is really important, but it, you know, it takes time. It's like relearning a skill. I think developing, like I talked about before, those t technique words could be really helpful because that keeps the person in the skill instead of thinking like, oh my God, why am I not doing this? Or I might fall or I might injure myself. And something I think is so important if possible is finding video of the gymnast doing that skill. If they don't have one of themselves, I think they can look at someone else doing that skill if, if they don't have one of themselves doing it. And then practicing imagery while watching that video. So like feeling themselves go through that skill, that kinesthetic sense, we call it in sports psychology, while watching video. And then eventually, hopefully they could do the imagery themselves without watching video. And then hopefully that once they start feeling it in their body again, the brain firing to their body the way it would physically, that hopefully they're able to transfer that a little bit more when they get back in the gym. That's great, Jamie. I think about so many times where I've heard athletes, yeah, they, they think that they've lost a skill. That's yeah. maybe what they would say, right? I'm thinking of figure skaters or gymnasts, or I just was talking to a baseball coach that was talking about yips. And I think sometimes what can happen is like we generalize. We think like, oh, one time we, 
we couldn't use the, we didn't do this skill. Oh my gosh, I lost it. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, you know, one particular event happens and then we say we're in a slump. (laughs) You know, know, we kind of generalize the language there. I appreciate your strategies. Excellent. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that you're sharing with us today? I just want to encourage people who are interested in this field to follow their passion. You asked about passion first. I know that's something you really love talking about. You know, we have people in the field who say, okay, this is the path to take. And if you want the most jobs, this is the path to take. And people certainly gave me advice of like, become a licensed psychologist, and that's going to open the most doors. And I personally like loved counseling, but didn't feel passionate enough to do a doctoral program in clinical psychology or counseling and stuck with what I really wanted to do. And that was teaching and consulting. And, and I eventually got to where I want to be. So you know, listen to people's advice, but really follow what feels right to you. And and then you're going to get there. You know, I think sometimes when people take others advice, and it doesn't feel quite right, then they realize that's not the path they should be on. And they drop out or they switch careers or whatever it might be. So I guess do what feels right to you. And same with athletes, right? Like trust your training, trust yourself. Um, if something's not feeling right, speak up and take charge of your own training. And it's easy to do for older athletes that I'm sort of working with now. For youth athletes, it's a little bit harder. And I would just say to parents and, and coaches, I am so big on positive youth development through sport. And I think there's a way to coach and still get really good results and develop competitive athletes by doing it in a, in a positive way and something that's going to enhance someone's development not hurt it so awesome so how can people find you jamie uh are you on social media or what's the ways people can reach out uh, and follow what you're doing sure i have some web pages mostly through the university of denver so if they search jamie shapiro university of denver they'll find that page with more of my academic accomplishments on it and then for if they want a consultant, then they can look on the Sport and Performance Excellence Consultants website, which is specs, S-P-E-X, consultants.com. And it lists all of our consultants, but they could certainly find me there as well as my email. Awesome. Jamie, here are the things that I got from this interview. So I took four, which is a okay. lot. <laughs> I love what you talked about related to reflective performances and how the best athletes you've worked with like reflect on each of their performances in a way that like they think about what what went well and then what do I need to respond and I loved how you talked about how you even debrief an event or a performance with an athlete you ask them what went well and then where does my focus need to be and I love that because it was not negative, but helping them direct their focus and helping them think about that they have control over that focus. And then the last two pieces, the third piece would be, you know, how your mind or mind your mental energy and the importance of being productive with that mental energy. And I think anybody who is listening can apply that idea of, you know, being productive with our thinking. And then I loved your thoughts on mental blocks and just the different different strategies that we can use to help people overcome mental blocks. So I'm grateful that you spent the time with us. Uh, I know your time is valuable, so I'm grateful for that. Do you have any uh, final advice or thoughts for high performers who are listening today? Well, when you were just summarizing that, Sindra, the productive piece, the, the having productive thinking, I think it's important for everyone to think about how they can apply that to different areas of performance in their life. So not just sport, but uh, their work life, they're in performing arts or a high risk occupation, 
but also just in general in their life with their relationships, with their families, um, with their exercise as well. So I hope people can take that productive mindset to many different aspects of their life. Awesome, Jamie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Sidro. This was awesome. So good to chat with you. Thank you for listening to High Performance Mindset. If you like today's podcast, make a comment, share it with a friend, and join the conversation on Twitter at Mentally Underscore Strong. For more inspiration and to receive Syndra's free weekly videos, check out DrSyndra.com.